tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Last week, I teased you, mercilessly, about two new projects that we're releasing under the Creative Reason Media banner, all rights reserved. Both shows are hosted by author and raconteur T.J. Lee. They'll feature deep dives into the people who are creating, or have in the past, horror in its myriad forms. I'm proud to introduce you to T.J., who will be giving you an idea of what you can expect from these new podcasts. T.J., the floor is yours. Thanks, David. Hello, listeners. My name is TJ Lee. You may have heard of me through last series' featured episodes, taking on my creepypasta The Expressionless and the sequel Kakorembo. Or, more likely, this may very well be your first time meeting me. Either way, I thank you for allowing me into your homes to let you know what these shows are all about. Have you ever wanted to know more about the twisted minds behind some of your favorite works on the No Sleep podcast? How about the ones from history? We've got you covered on both fronts. It is my pleasure to introduce to you The Table Read and The Writer's Mythos. The Table Read is an informal sit-down interview with some of horror's greatest independent writers. I ask them, from one professional writer to another, what motivates them, dissect their stories to see what lurks in their abdominal cavities, scoop out their deeper thoughts on terrifying concepts, and encourage them to lay down their origin stories bare before all. Our first episode is with one of the most fascinating series of the last few years. It took the internet by storm, has been adapted into a phenomenal podcast, and was recently acquired by Amazon to be turned into a full-length show. The left-right game author, Neon Tempo, aka Jack Townsend, will be sitting down with me for a 90-minute tell-all interview that I have no doubt you'll fall in love with. Every Monday, every week, we'll bring you new, exciting guests for a look behind the veil. The writer's mythos is looking a little bit further back across history, our all-seeing eye casting itself onto history's most prominent and perhaps forgotten pioneers of the genre. My team and I scour dusty libraries and hallowed halls to bring you fascinating trivia, quotes both the burgeoning writer and the avid reader can enjoy, a lens on their life and the motivations behind how they did what they did. Our first episode debuts with H.P. Lovecraft this Wednesday and successive episodes following every other Wednesday. You could find us on Twitter at the Table Read Pod and at Writers Mythos for more information. We hope to see you there. We think you'll be informed and entertained by both of these new podcasts. We hope you'll check them out. You can check the show notes for links to where you can find and subscribe to the podcasts. And now that you have new ways to learn about those who create horror, I think we should delve into the fruits of their labor and share some horror of our own. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. 
In our first tale, we join a fisherman heading to the docks. A thick fog has rolled in. A damp, oppressive atmosphere fills the air. And in this tale, shared with us by author Danny Leonard, we learn that the fisherman has a friend who is trapped out in the middle of it all. And we know that nothing good comes from a thick, impenetrable fog. I perform this tale alongside Mike Delgadio, Mick Wingert, and Jesse Cornett. So peer into the gloom, listen to the voices out on the ocean, take stock of the fact that something is wrong, and find yourself thinking, I know what purgatory feels like. fog rolled in that morning. I guess that's the best place to start this. You see, trust is born from transparency, but all transparency is lost when the air around us is opaque. Living by the bay, residents of this small town are used to a morning fog draping the landscape. The watermen use a little more caution, school might be delayed, and life goes on. This fog, though... This fog was different. My day started out like any other would. I wake up at the butt crack of dawn, brew my daily dose of coffee, fry up and slurp down some eggs. Then I'm out the door on my way to my boat for a long day of hand-tonging for Chesapeake gold. (laughs) Oysters, that is. But on my way to my truck on this particular day, I realized the fog was extremely thick and somehow paler than I'd ever seen it. It was like a shade of grayish white I couldn't have imagined or thought of if I hadn't seen it myself, if that even makes sense. I could hardly see twenty feet in front of me. The fog around my truck seemed to leach its red tint from its surface. The air was cool and dry on my skin, but there wasn't a breath of it moving. The eerie silence and blinding backdrop made me feel as if the earth was on pause. There weren't birds chirping, geese honking, or so much as a cricket looking for a fuck buddy. As I stood there trying to make out my surroundings through the haze, I heard the fire whistle blow one, two, three times. This broke me from my trance, and I reached for the door handle on my truck. On the way down to the wharf, I heard the morning weather report come over the radio. Well, folks, it looks like we've got ourselves a dreary day ahead of us. There's a front moving in, and this fog ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Please use caution while driving, and keep an eye out for pedestrians if you're driving through town. Ah, great. It was going to be one of those days on the water where nothing around you changes. All you can see on those days is the slick, calm water, a short perimeter around your boat, and beyond that... A white hall of nothing in any direction. If there's a purgatory, that's what I imagine it feels like. As I was driving through town, I heard Johnny P's voice over the CB. Hey y'all, can I get a ride into town with anyone? I'm down here to the boat ramp and some chicken necker backed into me and busted my taillights. I don't want to drive without him when this smoke screen is thicker than milk. I paused before picking up my mic. 
I'll come get you, Bunk. I'm headed your way now, but I'm moving slower than molasses on a cold day, so I might be twenty minutes or so before I get to you. I was in no rush to get out on the water today anyway, so I figured I'd help the guy out. He would have done the same for me. Sounds good, buddy. Take your time. I'm watching these city slickers try to get their boat off the trailer, so I get some entertainment. (laughs) I snickered at the comment and kept lurching my way through town. Usually there were the regulars setting up shop for the day, cleaning windows and hanging up touristy t-shirts in windows. But today the town was empty. I didn't even pass a single truck on my way through. It wasn't the busy season by any means, but it was like there wasn't any life hidden behind the curtain covering our little town. After getting past town limits, I made my way down the road to the wharf. As I rolled up slowly, I could see the yuppies must have unloaded their boat because their shiny new SUV was parked just at the edge of my vision next to the boat ramp and Johnny's rusty old pickup. As I crept closer, I could see Johnny's silhouette through the haze, standing about a quarter of the way down the pier, looking out over the bay. I honked the horn and flashed my lights. He slowly turned towards me and then back out to the water. Ah, what the hell is his problem? I honked again, this time with no movement in response. I got out of the truck and hollered to him. Johnny! Come on, let's go! If we hurry, we might be able to get to Martha's Diner in time for some fresh scrapple and grits! Help. It sounded like Johnny's deep voice, but there was no tone behind it. It didn't sound panicked or anything. Almost like it was a question or... Hell, it wasn't even that loud. It was at a normal speaking volume, but it sounded like it was right in front of me, not twenty yards away, facing the other direction. What's wrong? Help. I immediately began running over to him, not knowing what was wrong, but definitely feeling like something wasn't right. I made my first step onto the pier, and an old warped deck board caught the edge of my boot, sending me tumbling down onto the old wooden planks. I fell to my side, my elbow catching most of the blow. As I got back to my feet, I noticed Johnny was further down the pier than he was before I fell. Help. Johnny, what the fuck is going on, man? What the hell is wrong? Come help me. He spoke in that same toneless voice. I began walking towards him, slower this time. Look, man, I don't know if this is some kind of joke, but I'm not having it. His silhouette started gaining more and more detail as I got closer, like a camera coming into focus. But about 20 feet away from him, I saw his form start to... uh, to... to dissipate. A black shadow with crisp edges slowly melting away into the nothingness of the surrounding fog. Johnny? Johnny, where are you? What the fuck is happening? I turned back towards the shore, but saw only the pier leading off into the thick cloud. That's when I heard the laughing behind me. Johnny's gravelly laugh slowly warping from good-hearted, gotcha-style laughing into maniacal, cold, almost machine-like cackling. I began to panic, wondering if this was some kind of trap. Determined to put an end to this, I ran towards the sound, fighting every instinct to turn away with each step. 
Tears started to well in the corner of my eyes, and I fought like hell to hold them back. I began yelling a battle scream as I got closer and closer to the unseen source of the laughter until the sound was all around me, not just in front of me anymore. Running at full blast, I almost lost it and fell off the end of the pier as I reached it. I came to a stop just before the edge, catching myself on a piling. I stood there, catching my breath, looking around in all directions in an attempt to find the laughing man, but found nothing. Are, are you scared, boy? This was now definitely not the voice of Johnny. It was like three voices were all speaking in unison. Three Deep, vile voices who seemed to know the punchline but were stretching out the joke to reveal the story. Who are you? What are you? What do you want? <laughs> Better run, boy. Better run. I beat feet, running back in the direction of the shore, seeing nothing in front of me but a short stretch of pier that kept coming out from the fog like movie film from a projector. Sprinting as hard as I could, but remembering the warped board, I kept my eyes glued about four feet in front of me on the boards below. What I saw shattered my brain into disorientation like I'd never known. It was the end of the pier, just like the end I had run from. No shore, no warped board, no concrete, no nothing. Just Fucking water. Cold, flat, gray water. I crumpled to my knees, leaning on a piling. The same piling I'd caught myself on before. <laughs> Nowhere to go. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to be. You are nowhere. <laughs> The voice sounded like an insane man giggling and muttering to himself, hunched over in the corner of a room. I wiped tears and sweat from my face and ran in the other direction, thinking maybe this is all some kind of illusion, that I got turned around, but it couldn't be. It's not possible. I reached the end again with the same result and crumpled to the ground, crying in a curled-up ball. The laughter slowly faded away into the ether, and everything faded to black. I awoke to the same surroundings, not knowing if a whole day had passed or how long I'd been out. I don't know how long I've been here now, but it feels like weeks. I tried using my cell phone, but I have no service, and the clock just reads zero, zero, along with the date, zero, zero, zero. I'm not hungry or thirsty, though. All I know is that I don't know where the fuck I actually am, or if I'll ever be able to leave. I walk to the edge from time to time, and then back the other way to the same edge with no effect. I think about jumping in the water to see if I could swim somewhere, but I can't bring myself to do it. What if I end up in another loop and try to swim back, but every time I turn around the pier is right where I was when I decided to swim back? No, no, I can't risk it. 
I have to just stay put on this dock in this silent, foggy pocket in the universe and hope to whatever fucked up God would allow this to happen, that someone will find me. I now know what purgatory really feels like. to be a food blogger, traveling around the country, finding the best restaurants, eating delicious meals, and discovering overlooked talents that might put both the eatery and yourself on the map. A dream life. But in this tale, shared with us by author Maxwell Horton, one critic discovers that it's not always wise to look behind the curtain at your favorite food place. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Atticus Jackson, and Mary Murphy. So prepare your chopsticks, keep some ginger on hand, and begin dining at the Hidden Sushi Restaurant. I moved to New York City for the food. A global destination with a myriad of world-famous and one-of-a-kind restaurants. I was able to get a production job with a major food magazine to pay the bills. But my real dream was to have a famous food blog where I would review restaurants around the city. I had a few hundred followers so far, but I had a long way to go before I could start monetizing the website. I wanted to be a reviewer that not only ate at the newest and hottest spots but one who also found hidden treasures tucked away in forgotten spots around the city. Tonight was one of the nights where I set off to find a treasure. I didn't use the internet or recommendations from others when looking for these gems. I simply selected a part of town and let my nose lead me to my destination. This evening, my journey began in Chinatown, an area I often enjoy exploring. The crowded streets brought together a combination of yells, laughs, and spontaneous drunken shouts. Heavy metal clanking from the subway cars rifled up through the street grates. Assortments of meat being fried came in waves, making my stomach growl each time the aroma wafted past my nose. Neon lights lit the pavement in a way that reminded me of the carnival on dark summer nights as a child. It was nights like this that made me absolutely love this city. Walking down these streets now, I'm shocked at how many of these restaurants I've dined at and start to wonder if I'll be able to find something new to review. Just as that wondering thought approached the beginning stages of worry, I passed an alleyway. Or at least that's what it looked like at first glance. But as I passed, a strange faraway glow caught my eye. I turned my attention towards the darkness and realized it was more like a small side street than an alley. Steam rolled through the narrow passage in sheets, obscuring any chance I had at reading the distant neon letters. What 
the heck? I started down the side street, a little timid at first, the creepiest thing mainly being the complete lack of other people. A quick movement came from a pile of boxes that almost caused me to jump out of my skin. I picked up my pace because I was almost certain it was a rat. The real question being, how big is it? Looking back over my shoulder, I realized I could no longer see the street. The steam must have picked up. When I looked back in front of me, to my relief, I had made it to the sign I had seen from the main drag. The sign read, Exotic Sushi from Forbidden Places. It was surely an old sign due to the loud fluorescent hum of the neon. I wondered to myself how many more hours of overworked humming did the sign have left until its inevitable ignition of an electrical fire. Below the sign was an old wooden door that may have been painted red many years ago and never refinished. There were no windows, no menu sign, no nothing, just a door. Opening the door answered the no windows question as I was immediately presented with a stairwell that only went down to the basement level of the building. As I stood there, doorknob still gripped in my hand, I again considered turning back. This could be the gem you need for your blog to blow up. Come on, it's just an old restaurant. Building myself up a little, I stepped onto the first stair and let the door shut behind me, surrounding me in black. I let my feet lead the way down the stairs as I kept one hand on the damp stone wall for balance. Making it to the bottom actually took less time than I would have expected. Blindly feeling around, I quickly found another old wooden door and turned the knob. Delicate light washed over me as I entered the surprisingly large dining room. Besides two occupied tables, there were 50 or so others that were empty. An extremely large person sat off in one corner of the room, draped in some sort of raincoat, shamelessly devouring the large plate of food in front of him. At the other end of the room sat a very tall and very slender man, resembling a skeleton more so than a man. He was sitting at a table with three... children? I couldn't really tell. They were small like children, but their faces had unsettlingly adult features. I made brief eye contact with this table of four and quickly looked away. Just as I was about to clear my throat in hopes of getting the attention of a host, I noticed the sign directly in front of me reading, Seat Yourself. I moseyed my way to the center of the dining room in hopes of finding a table with some privacy. My attention jumped to a smaller dining area back by the kitchen, separated by a partition from the main dining area. I made my way there and quickly acquired a table. I hadn't even removed my jacket when a man appeared tableside. (gasps) He looked similar to the man I had seen sitting at the table of four when I walked in. It couldn't be the same person, though, unless he had run to the back and changed into a dirty black suit. Welcome to Exotic Sushi from Forbidden Places. I realized he was my server. You scared me a little there. He didn't respond to this. He just stared at me. No smile, no expression. I started to realize how strange his face was. 
It was as if his bones were out of place or had shifted somehow. His very dry and very pale skin looked as though it was pulled tight over his pronounced features, ready to tear open at a moment's notice. In an instant, I realized how rude my staring was and quickly started talking again. This is my first time here. I assumed so. Okay. Well, is there anything you would recommend? Anything you're known for? There is no ordering here. The chef makes different rolls every night. You can either order a half platter or a whole platter. How much comes on a half platter? Fifteen. Fifteen pieces? Rolls. Oh my. Is there a smaller size option? No. I'll do the half platter then, and plan on having it for lunch for the next three days. Before I even finished my sentence, he was gone. Drink order? With liquids on my mind, I realized that I had the urge to use the restroom. I looked around the vacant room and spotted a narrow hallway in my section of the dining room. Assuming that this hallway must harbor the restrooms, since I hadn't seen anything off of the main dining area, I walked towards it. Cautiously peering down the poorly lit hallway, not wanting to enter an area only meant for employees, I saw the sign for the restroom. Making my way down the hall, I noticed that directly across the hall from the restroom door was a solid black door with a sign that read, Do not enter. No guests. No staff. No one. Chef only. I stood there for a moment thinking about how I had never seen a sign quite like that, especially the no staff part. Unless, I supposed, it had been a good while since the chef needed help filling only three orders a night. After I was finished in the restroom, I walked back out to find my platter of sushi, all 15 rolls at my table, no server in sight. Slowly sitting back down at my table, I began to wonder if this sushi was pre-made somewhere besides in the restaurant, but I figured since the chef picked the rolls each night, they could all be made ahead of time. The latter thought sparking skepticism in regards to the freshness. Besides the rice, I couldn't identify any of the other ingredients. I picked up the first roll and sniffed it. Bon appetit. I put the whole roll into my mouth. It was... It was absolutely delicious. I couldn't believe what I had just tasted. I quickly grabbed a piece from another roll and shoved it into my mouth. Purely divine. Another piece and another. I couldn't stop. It was as if my tongue was experiencing textures and flavors it had never been introduced to. I wasn't eating sushi. I was experiencing art. Before I had realized it, I had consumed all 15 rolls. I slumped back into my chair, flabbergasted at the amount of food I had just shoved in my mouth. Again, as if out of thin air, my server appeared tableside. I can see you enjoyed your sushi. That would be the understatement of my life. Let me get this out of the way and I'll retrieve your check. Thank you. Hold on. There's one more thing. To be frank with you, I'm a food blogger. I review restaurants around the city, and I have to say that I have never had a meal quite like this. How have I never heard of you guys? 
The owner and the head chef don't go out of their way to seek attention. That's insane! If all the food is even partially as good as what I just had, you should be packing this place to capacity seven nights a week. I'm sorry. It's always been that way. Well, I would like to speak with the chef and let them know how wonderful the food was. Again, I'm sorry. The chef does not meet with guests. Ever. With this final point, the server turned on a dime and left the table. Wonder if I... All right, that's just great. I had finally found it. That hidden, forgotten treasure that deserved to be experienced by all. This would change everything. It would put my blog on the radar for sure. If I could only speak with the chef, my review would go from great to amazing. I tried to think about why the chef wouldn't want to meet with someone who loved what they had created. Then it hit me. The black door across from the restrooms. That had to be it. It was positioned correctly in relation to the kitchen to be an entrance, and it would also make sense of the sign on the door. I scanned the dining room to see if anyone could see me before I got up and walked back to the hallway where the bathroom and the black door were harbored. I tried to move silently so I could be more aware of any incoming footsteps. Once I made it to the black door, I put my hand up to it and pushed as I walked in. The door did indeed lead to the kitchen, but it was what the kitchen held that simultaneously confused and horrified me. Scattered all across the kitchen surfaces were... creatures. Creatures that had been chopped and dismembered. An odd and sickening realization hit me as I came to recognize the dismembered flesh. It wasn't day-to-day wildlife or even the animals I would see on TV. These creatures were from the books that were read to me as a child. The cutting surface closest to me held the head of what looked like a horse at first glance. But upon further viewing, I noticed a long, spiraling horn protruding from the center of its head. Instead of crimson, a shimmering gold liquid poured from the unicorn's exposed flesh. I then noticed that the horn itself seemed to be shaved down. An assumption proved true once I saw a large metal phial and a bowl of shavings. I caught a glimpse of multiple five-gallon buckets on the shelf below that had been filled to the brim with the creature's golden blood. Just past the unicorn head, on the next cutting station, I saw what seemed to be small dolls. But of course they weren't. Dolls don't bleed or have guts that can be cut out. These tiny, four-inch-tall bodies had colorful butterfly-like wings that sprouted from their backs. There was a small pile of their lifeless, naked bodies, and next to it was an even smaller pile of their tiny clothes and shoes. For some reason, seeing that their tiny shoelaces were as thin as thread brought a wave of discomfort over me. In front of these two piles... A fairy person's dismembered arms, legs, and wings were displayed neatly. The rest seemed to be discarded. I was absolutely speechless in the presence of this fairy tale carnage. All across the kitchen were similar displays. There was a station of cyclops' heads with what looked like large ice cream scoopers to remove their eyes. 
A centaur lay splayed open, exposing a hollow chest cavity, its hooves shaved down in a similar fashion to the unicorn horn. In the furthest corner of the kitchen was a stainless steel tub, easily large enough for me to fit in, which held a partially scaled and quartered mermaid. As I began to come out of my shock, I finally realized why my meal had tasted like nothing I had ever experienced before. I started to feel ill as I imagined what exactly my stomach had been filled with. Which creatures had I eaten? Was it some of them or had it been all of them? I started to wonder if there were side effects to eating any of this. Just as I thought I would vomit, a voice came from behind me. What are you doing back here? I'm the only one allowed back here. I spun around to see a small, short-haired, petite woman standing in the doorway I had just entered. Her skin was pulled freakishly tight over her face like the others I had seen tonight, and down next to her side she held a gleaming chef's knife. Uh, Are you the chef? That would be about right, my dear. I'm so sorry. I was just looking to speak with you for a review I wanted to write about your restaurant. You know what? I can tell you're a busy woman. (laughs) I'll leave you to it and just be on my way. Well, that's just not going to work. You see, my ingredients are a well-kept secret, and I can't have that getting out. I just might have a use for you, though. Use for me? Why, yes. I'm constantly trying to come up with new recipes, you see... Searching every corner of the world for rare and unusual ingredients. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to track down some of these delicacies. I've been working on a new role for a while now, and just haven't been able to find the right protein. But from the looks of it, my final ingredient has come to me. When you're a kid, moving around the country a lot can lead to a lonely existence. It's hard to make friends when your family uproots regularly. So when you do meet a pal, it's important to make the most of your time together. But in this tale, shared with us by author Megan Hotz, there's something a little awry about our main character's new friend. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, and Nicole Goodnight. So by all means, be sociable and get to know the neighborhood kids, but maybe pay attention to what's going on at Andy's place. Most of my childhood was spent with my cheek pressed against the cool backseat window of my family's ageless hatchback as it followed an endless road. My parents traveled for work, 
a lot. I never resented them for it, but I also wouldn't say I was a natural introvert. I mean, I was certainly made one by the constant movement, and maybe not for my better. This is before everyone had a smartphone, and just before Facebook really took off. So I was a lonely kid, spending more time on the road than I did learning how to make friends. When we rolled into that sleepy little town in the Pacific Northwest, I was about 12. I remember being taken by how impossibly green it all was. Plants growing in places I didn't think they could grow. Dense cloaks of ivy swaddling trees and buildings all the same. The thickness of the rain-soaked atmosphere made me feel like a fish, straining my air from the water around me. The place vibrated with life, but contained a certain stillness. I forget the exact month, but it was during that rocky phase where spring doesn't want to quite let go into summer. School was a ways off, though. Not that it mattered, since I was homeschooled anyways. And besides, I wasn't eager to meet new kids that I'd be surely torn away from in a season's time. But I still needed some way to pass the hours, and in a pretty little town, little is the unfortunate clincher for a bored preteen. My neighborhood wasn't made up of white picket fences, but aged cobblestone and brick mottled with algae. Modest, but in a way that felt ancient and respected. Nobody ever seemed to be around, which meant I'd draw no suspicious, watchful eyes if I were to explore a little. I wasn't really a mischievous kid, but I was bored, and this lush town was more exciting than the dark, musty house we'd barely set up yet. There was a sprig of forest between my house and the next lot over, and it extended far past our garden border and beyond. I wouldn't say it was deep woods. The town wasn't quite that small, and we were close to its center. The trees served as padding between the neighborhoods, keeping the air green and wet. Still, they might as well have been a jungle to me at the time. That dewy silence remained unbroken as the rich moss carpets took in my footsteps, allowing me to creep unseen. I'd search for giant slugs and dazzling snails, perhaps even a frog or two, and I was careful not to step on the tall mushrooms that poked through the forest debris. It was like you could hear everything and nothing out there. I could still see the road in front of my house, but no cars ever seemed to pass. And you could hear the gentle patter of condensation as it slipped from the branches of the trees with trunks thicker than my body, and the sound of a robin preening its chest feathers far above. Maybe the fog dampened the sound, but it never unsettled me. In fact, it was peaceful. One day, that silence gave way to a voice. A voice that didn't break the silence, but slipped forth from it, like the rain running through the spongy moss. Hey. It was soft, simple, and it came from behind me. I jumped a little, as I'd been so focused on the sight of a slug inching along a log that I'd never have noticed, or expected, anyone joining me. He was a boy about my age. He looked plain, and dressed plain, and his plain eyes flickered with kittenish curiosity. Hey! The boy pointedly stared at the slug that I'd been so fixated on myself. I know where to find all the huge ones. Oh, cool. Do you want to see? The boy's face suddenly hardened, like the face of a tiny soldier. It's top secret, though. Yeah, I won't tell anyone. Promise. In hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have followed some kid I just met through a forest in a town I wasn't familiar with. 
But after a spring's worth of the dusty air of the car, and then the stale air of our bare house, the prospect of adventure was nearly intoxicating. So I followed the boy as he led me through the trees. Now suddenly aware that I was dealing with another human person, I fumbled for conversation, to go through the motions that normal kids must go through. I'm Andy. I gave him my name, and he smiled at me, and thus began a chapter of my life that I have never, and maybe never will, make sense of. Andy led me further into the woods. The path was barely even there, just a gentle depression in the nest of ferns and grasses, which made me wonder if it was only his feet that had flattened them so. He told me it wasn't far, and when I looked behind me, I could still see the shimmering black smear of the road between the trees. But as we went further, the trees grew taller, and the path was just a gash between the flanking ferns as tall as my shoulders. It couldn't be that far. The forest was only so big. I can't blame Andy for my own foolishness in following him, for my own curiosity. I also didn't blame him for anything once I saw where we had gone. At first, I couldn't see much. Andy shoved aside some ferns that served as sort of a gateway to the path that split out into a sort of clearing. There was a lot of bare earth here, and looking around, it was like an enormous tree had been torn from its socket in the soil. Then I saw things among the clearing. A couple of planks and poles here, some vaguely piled plastic there. But as I looked closer, structures truly melted out of the green. It was a playground, or more accurately, where playgrounds go to die. You see, someone must have used this place to dump broken or old playground equipment. Maybe it had once been a playground itself, left for the forest to overtake, but its objects were too haphazardly placed. A dirty metal slide leaned up against a tree with no ladder half in sight, and plastic pogo animals lay in the grass without their pogos. There was a swing set with only one swing, and bare chains swinging gently where its brethren had once hung. Other parts had seemingly mutated into all new attractions, pieces connected in weird places. A plastic slide fed onto a merry-go-round, teeter-totters arranged in weird angles end-to-end. The best of all, though, was the big wooden play structure, our castle. It was labyrinthine with every piece you could imagine. Fireman poles and ropes to climb the sides like a mountaineer, three sets of monkey bars of varying difficulties, a zipline. It had four levels, and beneath it, the earth seemed hollowed out into caves and forts. This structure was where Andy led me, to its underground and its center. A milky white disk of light marked where it meant to be, where the platform had long since collapsed. And Andy simply pointed. He was right about the slugs. They were so big I initially didn't even realize what I was looking at. They were like hot dog buns inching across the ground on their own. God, I could have watched those slugs for hours on their own but the rest of the place bewitched me too. If the town itself felt calm and isolated, this place was a world on its own. And it smelled so, so much sweeter than home. My parents didn't know about Andy's place. I was always home before they got off work, and Andy understood whenever I told them I had to go. 
He wasn't bossy or demanding. He never played nasty jokes or leaned into mean taunts the way so many of the other boys my age did. He was a good friend that way. I surprised myself when I realized that, yes, he was my friend. A strange little boy that had shared my love of gastropods and make-believe, who didn't judge my quietness and awkward gait. We pretended to be adventurers, riding the plastic animals through unexplored jungles, or sometimes we were trapped on an alien planet and those animals hunted us. We'd see if we could swing the rusted swing over the top bar and treated the derelict metal slide like a funhouse mirror. There was always something new, glinting in the grass and waiting to be discovered. A new piece of playground equipment to play with or a new mushroom to investigate. I enjoyed it so much that I almost considered telling my parents about it, just so excited to share this new place with the other people I really knew. But I didn't want to break my promise and tell Andy's secret. It had become my secret too, and I'm sure neither his nor my parents would have allowed us to play so often in a place that likely teemed with ticks and tetanus. Andy was an odd kid, which is part of what I liked about him. He'd go from dead silence to telling me the most amazing scientific facts about the world, about nature. Then he'd ask me the strangest things, like if Canada were a real place or what the name of a current president was. A peculiar mix of intelligent and naive. I felt the same way, really. We were laying in the grass by the plastic animals one day, just enjoying the quiet, and I decided to pull out a couple of comics. It was like they put him under a spell. At first I thought he just really liked the artwork. The cover of this one showed off a spaceman fighting off some robot dinosaurs. He asked me what it was, and I gave him the title of the book. But then he asked what that was. You see, I realized he meant the comic itself. And suddenly, some things started to make sense. I mean, if he didn't know what comics were, then he must have had those kind of parents. The strict religious types that think things like comic books come with subliminal messages that corrupt the youth or whatever. I brought a different comic every day, and we read them together, quickly becoming part of our play routine. I even let him keep one. It was a double I'd received in a birthday present mishap, so I was more than happy to pass it on. He treasured it, and cared for it, much more gently than I'd seen any other preteen boy with a comic book. One day I went to meet Andy. We always met up in that spot we'd first met by my yard and head to his place in the woods together. That day in particular, though, he wasn't there. Restless, I tromped down the path alone, suddenly wrapped with an anxious thought that Andy had gone without me. It was really only a short walk to the clearing, five minutes at most. I became concerned the longer I seemed to walk. Five minutes seemed more like ten, maybe even fifteen. How could I have possibly made a wrong turn in such a small spit of trees? I turned this way, that way, panic growing as my familiarity faded between the trees. I began to jog, trying to tame my racing heart, hoping I'd get anywhere recognizable a little bit faster. Then something crunched in the trees beside me and sent my stomach through my ears. It was Andy. What are you doing? I, I was just looking for the playground. I didn't see you, so I thought maybe you were there already. Andy just shook his head and smiled at me, then took my hand and led me away. 
I told you. Only I can find it. We arrived at our place in maybe two minutes. After that, I began to think a little harder about the playground. About Andy. Maybe I was just embarrassed I'd turned myself around so badly, and Andy could clearly see how freaked out I'd been. He never was the kind to tease me, but I still felt like I kind of had to prove it to myself that I wasn't a wimp, that I wasn't crazy. I tried to find the playground without Andy again one day. By that point, I'd steeled myself. I just knew I'd only spook myself and overlook those structures hidden among the tall and twisting trees. I'd even Hansel and Gretel my path there, leaving a trail behind me. No breadcrumbs, of course, just a broken branch here, piles of stones there. Things only just out of place enough to notice. I ran into my little stone piles after a couple minutes walking in the same direction, of walking straight. I hadn't turned, hadn't doubled back, and I knew I hadn't. Something in me, in that moment, flared up, an instinct I didn't know I had. It was all I could do to just calmly follow my path back out of the forest. For the next few days, I stayed home. If Andy asked, I'd just tell him I was sick. I don't know why I did it. Something in me just wanted a break from these cherished woods. The next time Andy and I saw each other, he'd seem concerned but didn't ask. If he didn't bring it up, I decided I wouldn't either. We began our games and things almost instantly went back to normal. Unknown anxieties ebbed away under the performative bravado of a preteen adventurer in the city of all toys. The day was long and so were the days after. When we laid on the ground, using sticks to doodle in the mud, Andy looked over at me. You're my best friend. You're my best friend too. He smiled. I smiled. It was the first time I'd had a conversation like it. One day, our wooden place at Castle was a massive pirate ship. I was the captain and Andy was my rival, trying to steal my treasure, a cool rock we'd found earlier. I gave quite the pirate speech about what I'd do when I caught such a sneaky thief. All PG cartoonish threats, of course. I carried on with the roughest, toughest accent I could muster, all the while sneaking about trying to find my ship's daring infiltrator. It was some line about gold and booty when I thought I heard a nearby giggle. <laughs> a shifting on the wooden boards. I had him now. Running to the source of the noise, I leapt out, beginning to mumble something about walking the plank to Davy Jones' locker, and, and everything was dark. Really, it was my fault. I wasn't paying attention to where I was going, and I didn't even feel the fall. I was just suddenly on the ground, the wind gone from my sails and my lungs, looking up through the rotted hole in the playset, unable to feel my arm. Andy's face peeked into the hole at me, dumbstruck but not panicked. Not even as I began to panic myself, realizing my arm had become a floppy, agonizing dead weight. I think it's broken. I didn't notice Andy jumping into the hole, but he was there, helping me up. He seemed confused, though. Like he didn't know why I sounded the way I did, why I was loud and blubbering. Through my pain-blurred vision, I could see the slugs, inching along the underside of the wood, sucking up the rot, 
their slime twinkling in the dark. We need to call my mom. He just gave me those blank doe eyes. I was incredulous. There was something about seeing those slugs that kicked me into action. The slugs I'd normally adored may as well have been spelling run in their slime trails with the adrenaline surge that knocked me onto my feet. Spurred by fear and pain, I just blindly shoved past Andy, out from the ford and back into the gray daylight. Wait, you're leaving? It's broken, Andy. I need to go to the doctor. I couldn't believe he'd even ask that, but I also couldn't waste any time on it either. The journey back to my house was a haze. I don't remember Andy following me. My arm was fractured, not as badly as it could have been, but it still set me up in the hospital for a little bit. The hospital wasn't really that bad. The worst part was having to explain the incident to my mother. I was, of course, a loyal friend and didn't want to rat Andy out. Exhausted, though, my creative juices had run out. So instead of an elaborate explanation for my injury, I just clammed up. My mom, then, got it in her head that I'd been beaten up by bullies or or got hit by a hit-and-run driver or any other manner of horrible things that I was too afraid to tell her. She always had a way of guilting the truth out of me by believing her own ridiculous, even worse realities. So I relented and blurted out the truth. I was on the playset with my friend Andy and I accidentally fell off. It wasn't his fault. My mom looked at me strangely. What place at? Who's Andy? I felt like a spy that had failed the mission, forced to spill the national secrets of my own private country. There's some old playground stuff out in the woods. Andy lives down the street. We've been playing there all summer. It's been really fun. I felt that the earnestness in the last part would convince her to go easy on the place. Why didn't you ever tell us about this friend of yours? I could only shrug one shoulder. Mom left the hospital and returned even more confused than before. She'd spent her absence going door to door through the neighborhood, looking for Andy and his parents to make sure he was okay, and to discuss the dangers in playing on old condemned playground equipment. Nobody she talked to knew who or what she was talking about. None of the neighbors knew a kid named Andy. Actually, the only people they knew of who even had children around there were the Masons, whose children had all grown up and moved away, the Stewarts, who had a new infant girl, and the McAllisters, who had been on vacation for a week and weren't due back for another week more. So again, my mom panicked. If Andy wasn't a local boy, he must have been some kind of predator. Even in my painkiller haze, I remember waving her off and assuring her he was a boy my age. He probably lived the next street over. Or the next. I'd ask him the next time I saw him. Before I got the chance, my parents broke the news. Another move was on the horizon. The next one will be more permanent, sweetie. The contract is for a few years with a chance at renewal, and we won't go far this time. It was expected, but still disappointing. I actually like this place. The green, the slugs, and my best friend. I put it off for a few days, even though my parents had already begun to pack. Well, at least packing the stuff that had been unpacked to begin with. I felt guilty for leaving, guilty for hurting my arm. 
but the clock was ticking, and I made myself man up and drag my sorry self out to the woods when my parents were distracted. I found Andy by the trailhead I'd made, scattering its pebbles with his shoe. Hey. He just smiled and we headed to his place once more. It was a subdued playdate, given my arm and all. The slugs were active, lurching among the mushrooms and entwining with isopods along rotting logs. I couldn't stand the silence, though. Not today. My parents are moving again. Andy's demeanor just changed. Why? I shrugged. They move a lot, for work. I tried to perk up just a little, in hopes it would have the same effect on him. But this time they say it's not far. I can come visit and everything. Do you have to go? You should just stay here. You have to stay. You can live with me. We can play here every day. I laughed, but Andy's flushed face and serious tone cut me off. His voice had taken on this frantic, screechy quality, and I realized quickly that he wasn't joking. Sorry, Andy. I wish I didn't move so much, too. We can still email each other, and I can come out here on the weekends. Andy stood up. He seemed angry now, and to be honest, it scared me a little to have him tower over me like that. I stood, too. I suddenly felt like I should probably head home. That unnerving, tingling sensation, the one I'd felt when I first got lost in the woods, I felt it then, even though I knew, or I thought I knew, where I was. When I looked around, things were wrong. Playground was there, but it seemed different. Only slightly, but different. The plastic animals all stared at me, painted eyes bright and intense against the foggy, green, flaking paint like tears. Slugs crawled over everything, so dense in certain places that I I couldn't see the wood and ground beneath them. They were on branches on the playset, writhing along the ground, and I realized more and more fog was beginning to set in. In the sudden breeze, the merry-go-round moved. The single swing swung. The teeter-totters smacked the ground with a crack that shattered the still that always blanketed this place so warmly. I didn't notice until then that I'd begun to back away. Andy began to cry. Big, fat tears, dewdrops on his bright red cheeks. Tears of anger, but so, so sad, too. His voice only came out as sobs and splutters, and I almost went to him. I almost began to cry, too. Andy, I'm sorry. He grabbed at me, and I don't think he meant to. I don't think he understood, but he manhandled my injured arm. Now! You can't leave me! You can't! (laughs) I instinctively jolted back, and the movement forced away Andy's footing. He fell forward into the mud and just lay there. At first I was afraid he hurt himself. Great, two kids hurt in the same place. As he continued to sob, he began to kick and flail his limbs, and I realized he was having an actual tantrum. (laughs) You can't leave me! (laughs) We're best friends! Best friends! (laughs) 
repeated it over and over, his voice sounding more and more wrong as he did, like he was speaking into a metal drum, the texture of rust scraping rust. It got worse the more he kicked, the more he screamed and cried, and the pity I had for my friend became fear. I didn't know what to do or what to say, but something caught my eye. The old slide we'd used as a funhouse mirror. I saw reflections, stretched and wobbly and scuffed by age. Andy, though, he looked less right than normal. Like his reflection was painted onto the slide, like it was put there for me to see, cropped up by an unseen puppeteer. He looked up at me, which I first saw in his warped, ogreish reflection, and I risked to look back at him in person. Just a sad, sorry boy, eyes red and more wet than the mud around us. We're best friends! I'm sorry, Andy. Bye. No! Come back! I couldn't. I couldn't even look back. I ran all the way home, through the trees and the mud and the giant prehistoric ferns, Andy's distorted wails fading into the rolling fog behind me. That's the last time I saw my friend Andy. My mom asked me about him again, but I told her I just couldn't find his house. Couldn't find the playground. It wasn't a lie, really, and she didn't bring it up again. We left soon, but I still brought my guilt with me. I should have said or done more. Andy was my friend. Maybe I was his only friend. Years passed. I tried to find Andy on social media, but nothing turned up. Nothing on the school websites and the papers, even when I had the morbid idea to check the obituaries. No local crimes. No distant crimes. No lost boys, no murdered boys. I laughed at myself for entertaining the idea that I'd spent a summer as a ghost's best friend. But still, nothing was worse than something. You can probably guess that when I got my first car and drove out to that small town, I couldn't find the old playground. In fact, I was perplexed to realize I could see right through the trees into the next street over. It wasn't a new development in the least. In fact, now that I think about it, I remembered seeing that street through the forest sometimes. Didn't I? Hadn't it always been there? Andy was real. I knew he was. He and his place. I'd broken my arm to prove it. And my extra comic book had gone somewhere. But where? Where had I really spent that summer? in a place where no boy named Andy seemed to exist, where one had never lived or died. What would happen if I stayed with Andy that day? It keeps me up some nights, not just the lack of closure, but the guilt. I know it wasn't my fault that I had to leave, and I did everything I could to find him again. He just couldn't be found. Sometimes I finally fall asleep, but only after wondering if Andy whatever or whoever he was, was really still out there. And I wondered if he ever found himself another best friend.
Every place has its legends, strange, mysterious stories told around campfires, parables with meaning and morals. That's no different here, where the forest ends and the mountains begin. But in this tale, shared with us by author J.D. Buffington, we discover that some stories are more rooted in truth than others, and it's all in the telling. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis and Graham Rowett. So join us on a journey with these two companions as we discover what awaits them at the last tree. Open scrubland is dangerous. Everything, even predators, stay in the forest. To venture out into that empty expanse at the foot of the mountain with no place to hide is to invite all manner of beasts. So the children are told to keep safe by the adults, but they tell each other a monster is out there beyond the trees. Children grow, and eventually have children of their own, and the warning with the legend grows with them. A dying thing lies in wait for those who dare travel past the forest, and dying things are best left alone. No one knows what it looks like, though they know exactly where it lives. At the base of a cleaved rock face, where one tree grows much higher up than the rest of the forest. It is the last tree, a marker for where forested rolling hills end and rocky, unforgiving mountains begin. The field below the cliff is strewn with grey rocks and mud, a trickle of water feeding a quagmire where moss, sickly shrubs, and the last tree grows. Rodents, insects, and birds flit between rocks and clumps. Otherwise, it's a desolate expanse, no good for climbing the mountain or foraging for resources. The monster lives there, only barely, so the children say, to stay alone, away from the village, away from the world, waiting to die. Its only company is also its home, the twisted and gangly tree pushing higher up than any other thing growing there. The first one rests at the tree line, stopping at an invisible line drilled into their memory as the place to go no further. The second one is strapped to a sledge, immobile. They stare out over the slope up to the last tree, up to the mountain. The first one shifts their weight and drags the second one along, stepping out of scrubland into gravel and mud. There will be no turning back now. So you're gonna do it, huh? The first one keeps moving, ignoring the second one. Remember when we would dare each other to do this? Run up to the last tree and back again as fast as you can, we would cry, shouting in excitement the whole way. 
Those were good times, weren't they? The first one doesn't respond. They continue through the muck. Who did it that one time? Still silence. I can start singing again. Pascal. That's right. Whatever happened to Pascal? Moved away. Nah, Pascal didn't move away. That's just what the grown-ups said to keep us from asking questions. Pascal got gobbled up. (laughs) Gobbled up by the last tree. We all saw it. That's how we know to stay away. But here we are. They are nearly to the tree when the first one stops. The second one is heavy and a bother. You can't stop now. Pascal wasn't eaten. Pascal didn't move away. (sighs) Then what happened to Pascal? Pascal wasn't real. We all share the story, daring each other to touch the last tree. There's always the one who does, and no one knows what happened to them after. (sighs) Pretty sure I remember Pascal. Short, red hair. Fast as the wind, though. (sighs) You didn't remember Pascal until I said the name. Oh. Come on. I don't think I have much choice. You don't. I was talking to myself. The first one takes the last few steps, dragging the second one to the trunk of the old yellow tree. It's never been green, but never sheds either. Lingering just above death, just above the forest. The first one sets to unfastening the second one from the sledge and tying them to the tree. The second one doesn't move or say anything, maybe resigned to their fate. Wind blows down from the mountain, cascading down from some other land they've never known. The tree sways a bit, creaking and groaning in protest. It's earned its place here, standing firm against wind and cold and thinner air. The two are disturbing the last tree's majestic rain over the forest. Somewhere below, a bird cries out. The second one broaches the silence between them. How did we end up here? I brought you through the forest. I mean it. What are we doing here? What is it you hope to achieve? Am I really a problem you think you can solve with old fairy tales? You're sick. The first one shifts to one side to dig something from a pocket. You're sick and I brought you here to make sure you'll always be better. The first one unwraps some dried food and slips it between their hood and scarf. Tying me to a tree on a mountainside in the cold won't make me better. Give me some of that, whatever it is you're eating. You know you can't eat this. Because I'm sick? Stop! I brought you here so you can get better. So that you'll always be better. Now you're repeating yourself. What does that mean? How can I always be better? The first one rewraps their snack and stows it away as they stand. We're here for you. You need to get better. If you get better, then I'll be better. And if we're both better, then no one needs to know you were ever sick. What am I even sick with? How am I sick? What good does bringing me out here do? So that you can get better. I just want, need you to be better. No one knows you're sick, so I brought you here. When you're better, we can go home, and no one needs to know. The elders say to leave your problems here. It's so you can forget about them, not make them different or better, whatever that means. I can't go back without you. Then they'll know. Know what? That I'm sick? 
that you came out here against everyone's warnings, or that you... The first one has begun to wear a groove in the soft gray mud. The second one remains motionless. The sun, hidden behind a slate of clouds, has begun to set, pitting the surrounding forest and mountains into darkened shadows. Walking off, the first one begins to pick up sticks and dead clumps of grass. The second one does not call out or struggle in their solitude. When the first one comes back with a bundle of dried detritus to start a fire, the second one resumes their line of questioning. What do you think the tree can do for me? Or is it the air? Do you think I'll really get better? The first one works at starting the fire. Okay. Tell me how we got here. Now who's repeating themselves? I really don't remember. Help me. A stone loosens somewhere up on the mountain and noisily bounces down to join the gravel. The first one looks tentatively up the rock face, but there is nothing there save cold gray stone against a cold gray sky. You don't remember because you've been in and out, and I brought you here because of that. As kids, we're told to stay in the forest because going out into the open makes you an easy target. Simple, common sense stuff. But legends come from somewhere, and I've got no other choice. The dying thing? You think the myth of a monster that is forever dying that eats anything that comes near is the answer? Not anything. Not everything. It only eats other things that are dying. You think I'm dying? You're not well. You plan to feed me to a dying monster? That's how you're going to save me? Of course not. The legend must have some basis in truth. Dying things come to the last tree, but there are no corpses here, no bones. And don't say scavengers. People have seen it, seen sickly animals come to the last tree to die, only to walk right back into the forest, healthy and vibrant as the days of their youth. People have seen it? Like Pascal? There's something about the tree. Healing properties, like herbs. Then why am I tied to the tree? Why not let me pick at the branches or roots? If I let you go, you'll run away. Why would I run? Because you already tried, when you first got sick. I don't remember. The first one removes their own hood, revealing a tired face. Too old to be young, too young to be old, certainly weary from the ordeal. They sit in silence and stare at each other a long while. The whole village was beset. Maybe an ill trader came through, or it was in the food stores, but people started getting sick. With the sickness came lethargy at first, then fright, screaming madness at seemingly nothing, then violence. My God, such terrible things. <laughs> if the sickness didn't take you, then a sick one would. To survive was no assurance, scratched or bitten, a death sentence either by the sickness, with time, or condemned by the village. Madness spread faster than the illness. Houses burned down. People struck down in the street for a little more than a cough that didn't sound right. When you showed signs, small as they were, when you didn't get up in the mornings, I knew it was only a matter of time before someone passed judgment. I tried to keep you safe, pretended everything was fine, hoped against hope. But then the screaming started. The second one makes no sound. Darkness has engulfed the forest below. The meager fire casts the tree in a long shifting shadow up the cliff, 
Even in the night, the larger members of the forest steer clear of the region, despite the attraction of the fire. Still yet, eyes are on them. Everything moves in a slow dance of anticipation. Tears cut rivulets into the dirt on the first one's cheeks. They wipe an arm across their face and stare into the flames. So I tried to keep you quiet, for your safety. I covered your mouth and tried to keep you calm, but you didn't see me. You saw something else, not me. I covered your eyes so you might not see it anymore, but you were so terrified. You shook and wrestled. Surely someone outside would hear, and that made me think, maybe you hear something. So I covered your ears. I covered your whole head, like a parent shields their child from their own senses when they're frightened. I silenced your screams. I closed your ears and eyes, and I held you still until... They rub their face vigorously, trying to regain their composure. I brought you here so that you could get better. If it's a medicine in the last tree, or a monster that eats sickness, I don't care. I'll do anything to make you better. Because it was an accident. I didn't mean to. The first one's voice hitches in their throat, changing suddenly. The sound of sobbing no longer there. Kill me. The first one says in the second one's voice. And there it is, the truth laid bare. I turn my attention to them now, moving slowly since my skin, thick bark, has stiffened with time. The first one splutters, disbelieving. They did not expect this, and why would they? I shake dust from my gnarled branches, loosening into tendrils to feel for the second one tied to my trunk. Dead, a thing for the insects to feast upon. No use for me. I rip the leather cords and examine its body. They have not only been smothered, but the eyes have been gouged into bloody pits, the ears scratched beyond recognition. I have not spoken in so long. Finding a voice is difficult, but something within releases into the air. That one was not sick. I toss the body aside for the scavengers to enjoy. What? 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 You, however. I taste the air with the budding foliage along my trunk and many branching arms. You are deliciously diseased. What? 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 The dying thing, the last tree, demon of the Elder World, whatever you like. That is what, what, what? The first one finally succumbs to the compulsion to run. They are barely on their feet when I catch them with a root thrust from underground. They scream in panic, but the cry for help echoes uselessly through the forest, bounces up and down the cliff with no one to come to their aid. I rise from the earth. No recognizable creature, a tree made of worms and fungus. You were 
right about something, though. The dying come to me, only to return to their worlds as lively as ever. That, my friend, my child, is because I go with them. The root is wrapped around them almost completely, constricting them into immobility, just as they had done to their companion. I squeeze until they can no longer draw breath. Their features darken as blood threatens to burst from their skin like a swollen tick. They gawp like a fish, but no air rushes in. Instead, I deliver a seed, forcing my tendril deep into their throat, planting it in the wall of their gut. Then I let go, dropping them to the ground with a wet thud. They heave and cough and retch, but hear me all the same as I am now inside them. Go back to your village and tell them the last tree is a safe place for children to play, that the mountains cannot be tamed by fear, that only through perseverance will we grow into the world. The dying thing has gone, and the last tree is good. Do this, and your sickness will be cured. The sickness in the village will burn itself out. No more screams now, no more loneliness. No more waiting to die. In our final tale, we join a woman, Caroline, in the twilight of her life. As Caroline lies back in her hospital bed, accompanied by her beloved son, Henry, she recalls the one time in Henry's life that he faced terrible danger. And in this tale, shared with us by author Gemma Amore, that danger takes a very artistic form. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews, Erica Sanderson, James Cleveland, Andy Cresswell, and David Alt. So let's reminisce with Caroline about her beloved son's drawing career and see how art can imitate life, at least when it's drawn in the sketchbook. In my nightmares, you are five years old again. I hold you in my arms. You bury your face into my neck, shaking. Your skinny, strong legs are wrapped around my waist. Your breath is hot and ragged against my skin. You are heavy, but it's a weight I cannot feel. The only thing I can feel is this huge, crushing burden of terror 
terror that threatens to snap me in two like a thin, dry twig. I am frozen to the spot. All I can manage is to hold you tight, your fear coursing through my own veins. Make him go away, mummy! I can't move. I can't do anything. I just stand there and hold you, watching our death approach on spindly, awkward limbs. And the twisted figure of an impossible man moves steadily towards us. He trails a long-handled axe across the floor as he approaches. It shrieks as it drags across the tiles of our kitchen and whispers with a dry, murderous intent as it hits the thick pile rug by the door. The impossible man opens his horrible mouth and laughs, an idiot, chuckling laugh. It fills up the air between us. A ravenous, malicious noise. It is the worst sound I have ever heard. He is the worst thing I have ever seen. His proportions are wrong. His legs are thin and crooked. His arms look like the branches of a dead tree, his fingers like sticks. His left shoulder sits in the wrong place, higher up on his body than it should. He has an awkward, limping gait as a result. His head is cocked stiffly to one side, although his gaze never wavers. His eyes are too bright white pinholes in a sea of murky, scribbled black. Around his neck hangs a grisly wreath made of blood and bone and hair. A small infant hand dangles from the centre of the wreath, and I cannot take my eyes off of it, no matter how hard I try. The tiny fingernails are stained red. I scream because I do not know what else to do. I do not know how to keep you safe. Mummy! The twisted figure lets out a bubbling, lunatic laugh once again and takes another step forward. It's the bogeyman. And he has come. For you. When I wake, you are a grown man, staring at me with concern on your face as I lie here in my hospital bed, things beeping and whirring all around me. Hospitals are desperately noisy places, and I hate being here. But the sight of you warms my heart and chases the nightmare away. Nightmare? Or memory? I hardly know these days. You take my hand and smile at me with that devastating smile of yours, 
and an unruly blonde curl works its way free from your carefully groomed hairstyle. For a moment, I see the five-year-old version of you staring back at me again, instead of the man you've become since. Sparkling eyes and devil-may-care gap-toothed grin, hair in desperate need of ruffling, cheeks that just had to be pinched and kissed. A white, long scar winds itself across one of those cheeks now. I run a single finger along it, gently. I remember the night you got that scar, and shudder, a familiar sensation of sickening dread pushing up the goose flesh on my arms as the nightmare rudely forces its way back into my mind. All these years later, and I still dream about that night. It's a small price to pay to have you here with me now. Mum, are you awake? I don't have the strength to answer you. Not yet. Instead, I let myself drift off onto a melancholy train of thought, still drowsy from all the medication I've been given. The bogeyman is not done with me yet. He pulls me straight back into the nightmare. He grins and hefts his axe in his horrible, distorted hands. His little pinprick eyes glow fiercely. His voice is ghastly, and you whimper and clutch me even tighter, shaking violently now. I can't stop staring at the severed hand at his neck. So small. Don't be afraid, Henry. <laughs> the thing gets closer and closer, slapping the butt of the axe head into the palm of one hand. Go away! Leave us alone! What am I going to do? I think, panicked, desperate, over and over again, a deer in the headlights. What do I do? I don't know what to do. How am I going to keep you safe? Go away! The bogeyman widens his smile. (laughs) He raises the axe high above his head. I'm awake. Oh... Thank God. Beep. 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 Goes the infernal machine behind my head. I've been told it's keeping me alive. But I'd really rather it didn't, unless it can do it quietly. Dying has been a noisy affair so far. Noisy and slow. I love you, Mum. I don't trust myself to reply. Not yet. I just 
smile like an idiot and enjoy the feeling of you being there, tall and strong and no less precious to me than you were when you were only five years old. So handsome. Such a handsome boy. <laughs> Hi, Mum. I'm filled suddenly with pride looking at you. I know that you are going to be okay when I die, after I have gone. And that is all we can ever hope for our children. Have I ever told you about the day you were born, Henry? But before you can reply, the memories come rushing in, clouding my vision. And I sink back into them gratefully, as if falling asleep on a deep, thick pillow. I remember the day you were born. Amazing how clear the memories are when you're on your way out. I remember the contract I made with myself on that day. I had waited a long time to meet you. Thirty years and nine months, to be exact. If that seems like a long time to wait for your life to begin, well, you're right. I mean, I was happy before. I was young and healthy, and I had your father. We made a good team. But I knew I needed you. I needed you to make my life complete. And then you arrived with a rush of pain and frantic activity. They handed you to me, and I looked speechless at your tiny, wrinkled face coated with blood and thick white mucus, your little angry blue fists clutching tightly at my finger. You cry, and it pierced my heart. We locked eyes. They say babies can't see anything at that age. But you saw me. I know it. Your eyes were steady and clear, just like mine. A promise passed between us. The contract signed in love. A promise to protect you, no matter what the cost. No matter what the risk. I laughed. And you closed your eyes. And even that tiny movement was perfect. You were here. Finally here. My son was born. And so was I. The sound of you crying fades, and the hospital of yesterday fades into the hospital of today. Beep, 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 reminding me of how ill I am. I know it is only a matter of time now. A nurse is in the room with us. She is talking to you in hushed, respectful tones. It won't be long now. Will it... Will it hurt? 
No, she won't be in any pain. She'll get more and more drowsy and fade in and out of consciousness. And then eventually fall asleep. And that will be it. Just be there for her if she gets confused or distressed. Call me if you need anything at all. I'll leave you in peace. Thank you, nurse. Time passed. You grew into a toddler, and that toddler became a small boy of five years old in the blink of an eye. Five. My favorite age, if I'm honest. So grown up in so many ways, and just a baby in so many others. Old enough to display some independence, young enough to still need me. You were five the first time you displayed any interest in drawing. You were five when we got you the sketchbook. We had a routine, you and I, a way of passing the time together. And sometimes, on a Saturday, that routine meant that I took you to the toy shop to buy you a treat. Indulgent? Yes, but when I was a child, I was too poor for such things. So I had a tendency to spoil you whenever I could, because it felt good to be able to do so. As we wandered around the store on one particular Saturday, looking at trucks and action figures and construction kits, you turned to me. Well, sweetie, what would you like to choose? We can spend up to £20. Can you remember what the number 20 looks like? You rolled your eyes, as five-year-olds do. Of course I know what a 20 looks like, Mummy, but I don't want a toy for a treat. Oh? Well, what do you want? I want a sketchbook and some colour pens like we have at school. Oh, right then. There was enough plastic crap in our house to keep ten small boys entertained. A sketchbook would make a nice change. I marched you out of the toy shop and into a neighbouring bookstore before you could change your mind. If only we'd walked for five minutes more. Chosen a different shop. But we didn't. I was so eager to make the most of your newfound enthusiasm for art that I panicked, dashing into the first place I could find. I've been back since. Tried to retrace our steps. Find the shop. It isn't there anymore. Somehow... Given the things that followed, this doesn't surprise me. It was a curious, dusty, dishevelled place, books piled high from floor to ceiling in a haphazard manner. It wasn't really suitable for a five-year-old, but I knew they carried stationery and could see they had a good selection of notebooks, sketchbooks and art materials. These were kept at the back of the store, in a small alcove, which was dark and quiet. There was no store owner to be seen, so we went straight to the back and started rummaging. I picked up an age-appropriate sketchbook covered in dinosaurs. I'm going to choose, Mummy. Okay, of course you can choose. 
You took your time, screwing up your face and humming, something you always did when you tried to concentrate on anything. You shifted through the piles of stationery, fingering the different covers. Hardback, softback, pattern, plain, line, unlined, thick and thin. I watched as he pulled at a book at the bottom of the pile, and before I could do anything, the entire pile then collapsed, landing on the floor and scattering everywhere. Oh, Henry! You were in a world of your own, holding your brand new sketchbook out in front of you with a bright, excited smile. Oh, I want this one! You thrust an enormous red book at me. It looked huge in your small hands and was covered in a thick leather binding that gave it an antiquated feel. I took a moment to appreciate your good taste and then waggled my finger at you. I want this one, please. And you aren't getting anything until we tidy this mess up. You rolled your eyes again. So sassy, even at that age. Oh! We picked up the other books and stacked them neatly back on the table. I looked around for the store owner, but could see no one. On further investigation, I spotted an honesty box near the front door. I shrugged, looking for a price sticker on the sketchbook. When I turned it over in my hands, I spotted a yellowing label with a handwritten message on it stuck to the rear cover. It read, Pay only what you think I'm worth. No refunds or returns. I shrugged again and put £20 in the honesty box, which I thought was adequate for the book and a pack of coloured pens. Then we left. You clutched the book tight to your chest in glee the whole way home. I had no idea what I'd just done. What I was about to bring into my house. How could I have known? This doesn't stop me from blaming myself every day for what it did to you. But on that day, we were both oblivious, walking side by side in the sunshine, a happy little unit without a care in the world. And then, well, then, it all went to shit. Henry. My voice sounds alien to me. It sounds thick and heavy and cracked and old. Because that is what I am now. You raise your head from your hands and look at me. You look so tired. My poor boy. Mum, what is it? You still have it. You know immediately what I'm talking about. You sigh and rummage around in an overnight bag you have next to you. After a few moments, you pull something out of your bag and hand it to me. A scent follows the book into the sterile hospital air. Evocative. Rich. Exotic. The smell of cinnamon. I breathe it in. 
I take it carefully, with trembling, clumsy fingers that are knotted and spotted with age. I thought you had destroyed it. I turn the leather-bound book over in my hands. I tried. I tried a hundred different times. I tried burning it and throwing it into the river. And even once I tried to feed it through a shredder. Shredder blew up and the book remained as it is, without a scratch on it. This book was meant to belong to you. I hold you with a firm gaze. Henry, I want you to draw something for me. We stare at each other, and the notebook lies between us, listening, waiting for the inevitable. We got home, and you took your new book and your felt tips and settled down on the small table in your bedroom. I started preparing a sandwich for your dinner. Peanut butter and jam, the only thing you would ever ask for. I was in an indulgent mood, so I made it for you as a treat, fully aware that I was going to mum hell for preparing something so beige and lacking in nutrition. I was just cutting this sticky, disgusting sandwich into triangles for you when I heard you shout. I wiped my hands on my shirt and came to find you in your room. You stood in the middle of your bedroom, covered in pen. You held the sketchbook open in both hands for me to look at and pointed at the drawing within. Look, Mummy, I drew a dog. As I drew closer, my mouth dropped open. You had, indeed, drawn a dog. Standing there on the paper, bold as brass, was a large, enthusiastically realised, multicoloured dog with a long tail, floppy ears and a black, shiny nose. I'd been expecting, well, scribbles, maybe a stick man at best. I gaped. I mean, it wasn't perfect. The perspective was warped, as you would have expected from a five-year-old, and there were too many legs, and the edges were all jagged and hasty. But it was such a lively drawing, so full of character and warmth, that I was genuinely at a loss for words. I tore my eyes away from the dog and searched your face intently. Did you really draw this, sweetie? I wondered if the book had already been used by someone else before we bought it. I did? I drew it all by my own. He's called Toby. I stared at you, still stunned, and gently prized the book out of your hand so that I could get a better look. I walked over to the window where the light was better and pressed my face right up against the paper. I got a whiff of the stiff leather cover and the starchy pages. They smelt strange, musty, but with a hint of... What was that? Cinnamon? As I puzzled over the strange scent, trying to put a name to it, out of nowhere I heard an unexpected sound. 
And then again, once more, almost right inside my ear. Just like a dog barking. I jerked my head back, shocked, heart leaping in my chest. Toby the dog grinned at me from the sketchbook, as if enjoying a joke that had a punchline I didn't understand. I laughed, shaking my head at my own stupidity, nerves still fluttering like moth wings. Of course the goddamn drawing hadn't barked at me. Ridiculous. I handed the book back to you, feeling sheepish. Darling, it's wonderful. Should we put it on the fridge for Daddy to see? Yeah, and then maybe he can take it to work with him. Maybe. I stuck the drawing to the fridge, as promised. You ate your dinner and slurped at a glass of milk I set down in front of you absentmindedly. Oh, what's that draw next, Mummy? Hmm. Something in me still felt a little unsettled, and I glanced at Toby, the laughing dog, who somehow seemed even more lifelike now he was pinned to our kitchen wall. How about a nice bird? An eagle. I shuddered and shook my head, feeling nervous without knowing why. No, not an eagle, please. Something smaller. How about a robin? But it's not Christmas. Doesn't matter. Robins are my favourite. You smiled at me. All right, Mummy. Robins are not my favourite birds anymore. At dinner time, your father came home and I showed him the drawing of Toby the dog. He was impressed. Did Henry draw that? Really? I nodded. Looks like school is teaching him something after all. We both stared at Toby. We fell silent as the scribbled animal stared back at us. There's something so... so lifelike about it. Your father sounded a little creeped out, and I shivered in agreement. I know. I mean, it has like eight legs, but... I know exactly what you mean. Your father took off his glasses and wiped them with the corner of his shirt, peering once again at the drawing. It's like... it almost looks like it's about to move. Jump right off the damn paper. I feel like I should be throwing a stick for it to fetch. I can't believe Henry drew this. At that moment, we heard you scream. Your father and I looked at each other, then rushed to your room. We found you cowering in the corner, the sketchbook clutched to your chest. On the floor, in front of you, a ripped-out page from the book lay discarded. It was blank. You pointed wordlessly at the paper, and then at the window. We followed your finger, wondering for a brief moment what the problem was. And then I saw it. 
and my hands fluttered up to my mouth in disbelief. A bird flapped and squeaked at your window, flying into the glass window pane again and again and again in a desperate bid to escape the confines of your room and get outside. Each time it hit the glass, it made a meaty thudding noise that shook the window pane in its frame. And each time it came away from the window, it chittered and cried out with a strangled, warbling sound of frustration and pain. Mummy! Mummy! Make it stop! Make it stop! The bird attacked the window one more time. The bird fell to the carpet. Your father rushed across the room to sweep you up in his arms. Cautiously, I crept across the bedroom towards the dead bird. As I approached, I saw its feet twitch once, twice, then stop. Belly up, body twisted and frozen in death. It was clear that the poor thing's neck was well and truly broken. On the window pane itself, a large red smear was spattered across the glass like graffiti. I looked down at the bird again and noticed its red breast, a red that was not blood. Was it a. Was it a robin? My skin prickled, and the hairs on my arms stood to attention. Draw me a robin, I'd said. And now here was a robin, laying in a bloody cloud of feathers with its neck broken on the bedroom floor. Your father soothed your tears, rocking you. I'm sorry, buddy. Sometimes these things happen. Poor birdie. Must have come in down the chimney and panicked, looking for a way out. I stared at the blank sheet of sketchbook paper on the floor, knowing full well that we'd blocked the chimney in your bedroom up years ago with newspaper to stop the drafts. I felt very far away all of a sudden. (laughs) I just wanted to draw something nice for Mummy. My blood turned to ice. I looked from the dead bird to your face, to the paper once again. I drew you a robin, like you asked, Mummy. I drew it for you, and then it flew into the window. You burst into fresh convulsions and hugged your father tight. He hugged you back. I crouched down once more to examine the bird, a strange, tingling sensation running down my spine. I picked it up delicately by one twiggy leg, holding it with distaste between my thumb and index finger. As I looked at it, really looked, I began to feel sick. The robin had a smooth, oddly featherless body, From a distance, it bore the right colours, but up close it was blank and flattened and almost plastic-looking. It had a weird two-dimensional feel to it, 
as if I were holding a cardboard cutout of a bird. A single black, beady eye gazed lifelessly at me. A broken beak, which looked like it was too long for the bird in the first place, hung pathetically from the oversized head. The feet, instead of ending in small, delicately formed bird claws, ended in strange, straight, thin appendages that looked like broken matchsticks. The wings were leaf-shaped instead of wing-shaped. All in all, it looked exactly like a bird would look if... if a five-year-old had drawn it. I looked at Henry once again, thinking back to the dog he'd drawn earlier and the barking noise I thought I'd heard. Blood rushed in my ears, and I thought to myself, am I going mad? What is happening here exactly? Poor birdie. We all agreed, sadly, whilst inside, my stomach churned. Poor birdie. Your father took you off to watch some cartoons and try and forget about the dead bird, which I disposed of using a dustpan, a brush, and a lot of newspaper. I swiftly carried it through the house, wrapped it up like a burrito, and threw it in the bin. The newspaper unrolled as the bird hit the bottom, and the weird, mutant creature stared accusingly at me from the bottom of the trash can where it lay. I banged the lid down with an air of finality brushing my hands together as if to rid myself of it. I went back into the kitchen and glanced at the sketch of Toby the dog. I froze, mid-step. The piece of paper with a disturbingly lifelike dog drawn onto it was now blank. Toby the dog had disappeared. With shaking hands, I unpinned the now blank page from the wall. I did not know what to think. Were you playing a prank on me? Surely not. At five years old, your sense of humour was nowhere near this sophisticated. Had I pinned the wrong thing to the wall by mistake? But no, your father had come in and we had been looking at the dog when you called to us from your bedroom. No one had come into the house and swapped the paper over for a blank sheet. That was simply ludicrous. My mind flashed back to the blank sheet of paper on your bedroom floor. The one you had pointed to before I'd seen the deranged robin at your window. Pieces of a peculiar puzzle started to slot together in my mind. But I was reluctant to believe what instinct and common sense were trying to tell me. That the paper was blank because Toby the dog no longer lived in the sketch. Toby the dog lived in the outside world now. Don't be stupid, Caroline. I marched over to our drinks cabinet and pulled out a dusty bottle of brandy, knocking back a shot of the stuff before I knew what I was doing. We weren't big drinkers in our family, and the brandy was usually reserved for emergencies, but somehow this felt serious, and my nerves needed fortifying. My eyes tracked back to the empty sheet of paper and stayed there, contemplating. 
I was still staring at it when you came into the kitchen with your father to kiss me goodnight. Good night, Mummy. Your little face was puffy and exhausted. I shook myself and knelt down. I gathered you in my arms, holding you tight and running my fingers through your curly hair. Get some sleep, buddy. You've had a tiring day. Daddy's going to tell me some extra stories tonight. Fine. Then I leveled your father with a serious, stern look. Just no scary stories, please. Not at bedtime. I don't want him waking up having nightmares, especially after today. Your father raised his hands up, a picture of innocence. I repeated myself, because suddenly it felt very important that he understood. Okay. No bogeyman. Peter, please. All right, all right. But I knew he wouldn't listen to me. Your father never did. The next day, we had an argument, you and I. Most children are stubborn, but by God, you had a talent for it. You caught me when I was tired and still preoccupied with the events of the day before. The argument blew up into a tantrum before I knew what was happening, as arguments with stormy children always do. I stood in your bedroom, looking at an explosion of toys, clothes and Legos strewn across every available surface, and folded my arms, my mouth turned down disapprovingly. What's this? You must have turned out every drawer and cupboard on purpose to make this amount of mess. It looked like a toy bomb had gone off dead in the centre of the room. I could barely open the door, let alone walk across the floor. You shrugged, sullen, and I could tell from the circles under your eyes that you were tired, that you hadn't slept either. You stuck your lip out, surly. I felt like making a mess. I felt my temper rise. Well, this is not acceptable, Henry. Do you hear me? No more cartoons or treats of any sort until you tidy this mess. But I don't want to, Mummy. I just want to play. Not until your room is tidy. No, you do it. You lowered your brows moodily and stuck your bottom lip out even further. I put on my most authoritative voice. If you don't tidy this mess up, I'll cancel the trip to the zoo on Saturday. The lip wobbled. I could see you struggling with something you were not old enough to articulate. I know now that it was stress and an underlying feeling of things not being quite right in your usually sunny and simple universe. But at the time, I thought you were being a stubborn little mule. But that's not fair, Mummy! Well, it's not fair that I should have to clean up all your mess. Mummy works hard enough as it is. It won't hurt you to tidy away a few toys. No, I don't want to! Okay, no zoo trip then. I'll tell your father to cancel. No! I hate you! You're a mean mummy! I tried to grab you, but you were too fast. You snatched up that damned sketchbook, which never seemed to be far from your reach, hugged it tight to your chest with a wounded, furious expression, and ran past me, 
stopping on the way to kick my left ankle hard. It hurt. And you ran off, fully aware of how naughty you were being, but not willing to stick around and suffer the consequences. I let you go and sigh, and rubbing at my ankle, wondering if it was too soon to revisit the brandy bottle. I knew you'd calm down eventually. I waited 20 minutes and then went to find you, knowing exactly where you'd be. I found you curled at the base of the walnut tree in our backyard, red-faced and sniffing, scribbling furiously in your sketchbook. Hey, buddy. I approached cautiously and crouched down. We held each other's gaze a moment, then your eyes filled with tears and your resolve crumbled. A stricken, worried expression took over where anger had been only moments before. I realized that you weren't scribbling in your sketchbook, but rather trying frantically to erase something. Whatever it was wouldn't rub away. A strange feeling of premonition took hold of me, and I felt cold. Henry? You stared at me with those huge blue eyes. I drew something really bad, Mummy. You showed me the book, which trembled in your hands. Oh, no! Henry! Oh, Henry! I didn't know what else to say. I felt sick to my stomach. An angry, jagged sketch of a tall, angular man dominated the page. He had pinprick eyes, shoulders that were mismatched and sloped, arms that dangled too far down his body, and a horrible, fixed leer on his face. A leer filled with a great many square, crookedly arranged teeth. You had drawn bright red splashes of blood on those teeth. My eyes dropped from the thing's face and down its body where a grim necklace lay like a bloody garland around its neck hanging from this was a small dismembered hand chopped off cleanly at the wrist the man clutched a long-handled axe which was also covered in blood he had coloured in splashes of red all over the page on the floor, in front of the horrible black figure, lay a body. A stick figure, really. But one with long brown hair, just like mine. And a white shirt, just like mine. And blue jeans, just like mine. You'd drawn eyelashes around my blue eyes. Eyes the same colour as yours. And my mouth was a wide open Oh, of surprise. I was quite clearly dead. I shivered as I looked at the hateful sketch and then back at you. You burst into tears and threw yourself into my arms. I'm sorry, Mummy. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I, I tried to take it back, but it won't, it, it won't rub out. Your tears took over. And I soothed you, stroking your hair, 
and rocking you gently. Don't worry, baby. It's just a sketch, darling. It can't hurt me in real life. I cursed your father inwardly, feeling furious. He had clearly told you a bedtime story about the bogeyman, despite my warning. And then you'd done exactly what I was afraid of. Drawn him in a fit of rage and sent him after me. In the distance, a dog barked, and I shuddered. What do you want me to draw, ma'am? You bring me back to the present, and my body is feeble and frail once again. I can feel the dull ache of a cannula piercing the thin skin on the back of my right hand. I long to yank the thing out, but it is drip-feeding me pain relief, and I lack the energy anyway. You look at me, concerned. Mum, I don't... I don't use this thing much anymore, Mum. It's dangerous, you know that. I know. I want you to use it. Just one more time. For me. So what do you want me to draw? But the waves of medication are swelling and rising. And I am swept out to sea once more. That night, your father rang to say he would have to stay out of town for a last-minute conference he'd been invited to. I rolled my eyes at him down the phone. Now wasn't a good time for him to be away, but he assured me there was no choice, told me he loved us, and hung up. I fought my frustration, considered calling him back and having it out with him, but I was unwilling to have the same argument we'd already had for the thousandth time. Still, it rattled me. What about my work? Where were my fancy business trips, my swanky conferences and all-expenses-paid-for hotel stays? I sighed, resigned to another night of solo childcare, and decided to break my usual rule and allow you to sleep in the same bed as me that night. For some reason, I wanted you close. As the evening crept on and the light faded from the sky, our usually warm and comfortable house took on a cold, almost sinister feel. I checked and locked every door and window while you got dressed into your pyjamas, all the while listening for any unusual noises and hearing only the distant barking of that damn dog once again. I tried hard not to think about that or the missing Toby dog from the paper in the kitchen. After I was sure that the house was secure, I found the sketchbook in your room and sneakily put it into a cupboard high up where you couldn't reach it, tucked behind tins of fruit and beans and soup. Tomorrow, I would take it out into the yard and burn it. From now on, you could draw all over the damn walls for all I cared, just as long as you didn't touch that cursed book anymore. I made us some cocoa, and we snuggled up in bed together, 
I told you a story about a little boy who found a magic sketchbook. The boy used the book to draw a door. And the door led to a happy, safe place where there was only love and light and laughter. It was a place without monsters. A sanctuary, I called it. The safe place. You smiled as you listened, and my love for you raged fierce in my blood. We fell asleep within moments of each other. The dog still barking somewhere out there in the distant night. (gasps) I awoke with a start, knowing immediately that something was wrong. You slept soundly by my side. I slid my now dead arm out from underneath your head and flexed it to get the feeling back. A noise rang out from downstairs, and I froze. Something was in my house. Something large and slow and noisy, moving around. I slipped out of bed, left you sleeping. My heart yammered in my chest, but I forced myself to walk towards the landing. I stood there at the top of the stairs, straining to hear and shivering in my nightgown. Goose flashed, cold and terrified. Silence regained its hold over the night. I leaned my whole body forward, desperately listening for any more alien sounds, wondering if I was going mad or was maybe even still asleep. The noise came again. This time it was closer. It rustled and scraped. It it, it growled long and low. I held my breath, willing my very heart to stop beating in my chest for fear of being heard. I knew then, without a shadow of a doubt, that the bogeyman was in my house, and he was coming for us. You had drawn him in the sketchbook, and he had come to life, just like the dog, just like the bird. I snatched up the heaviest object I could find that was within arm's reach, an ornamental lampstand made of polished marble. I yanked the cable from the wall and wrapped it around my arm, then descended the stairs. Softly. All I could think was that I had to lead it away from you. Time seemed to slow down. No. No, it didn't. Of course it didn't. That is a cliché. A lazy narrative to help me better process what was happening. Time moved at its usual pace, and I was swept along with it as I gingerly felt my way, step by step. I bit back a sock. Eventually, my bare foot hit the cold wooden floor of the hallway. I stood there, panting softly, holding the lamp out in front of me with a quivering arm. 
I was drenched in sweat from head to toe, but freezing at the same time. My heart felt so big, I thought it would smother me from the inside out. There was a pause, an unbearable amount of time where I could not tell what was happening at all, and then a small, thin voice spoke out from behind me. Mummy? I jumped always clean out of my skin. Mummy, what's happening? Everything stopped. Then, out of the gloom of the hallway, a shadow came towards us. Its outline was huge, murky, and confusing. (laughs) Get behind me, Henry! The bogeyman approached the strip of orange light which, cast from the street lamp outside, sliced through the half-shuttered window blinds, bifurcating our hallway. It was dragging something across the floor. Something heavy. Something solid and metallic. It made a curious, scraping, ringing noise as he moved. He came steadily into the light. And I saw that he was holding an axe. I saw the grisly necklace about his neck. I saw his horrible smile. Do you know how nightmarish everyday, normal, mundane things look when five-year-olds draw them? Cats with legs like stilts. Demented houses with ten windows and smoke pouring out of deformed chimneys and sloping Picasso-esque walls and roofs. Humans with single strands of bright yellow hair and crazy eyes and expressionless mouths and mismatched limbs too long for their bodies. Multicolored dogs with extra legs where there shouldn't be any. Do you know how fucking terrifying five-year-old sketches can be? Now imagine your child was trying to scare you. Deliberately drawing something disgusting and twisted and malformed and beastly and dangerous. My mind went back to the afternoon. Your beautiful blonde head bent angrily over your sketchbook. To the awful picture you drew. The look on your face as you tried and failed to erase the bogeyman. You leapt into my arms and I dropped the lamp and just stood there whilst that thing came towards us. Go away! And then... Then... I heard another noise. And then Toby, the fucking dog you drew, emerged from the shadows on eight legs, long claws clacking against the floorboards. Lips curled back to reveal sharp teeth that were too large for a snap. He barked, crouched, and then leapt at the bogeyman, furious, savage, defending us. I snapped out of my stupor. The sketchbook. We needed to get to the sketchbook. Come on, Henry. I hoisted you higher up in my arms as the dog fought with the bogeyman who raised his arms high into the air, bringing the axe down hard. As I left the hallway, slamming the kitchen door shut behind me, I heard a crunch and a yell. 
but I just kept moving. The sketchbook was in the cupboard. We had only a moment or two before the bogeyman would come for us. I put you down on the countertop and rummaged around desperately for the book, thrusting it into your hands and grabbing a pen from the nearby notice board. Quick, Henry! You stared at me in confusion, tears streaking your face. What, Mummy? My boy. My darling baby boy. You need to draw. We can only beat the bad man with something from the book. Do you understand? You nodded, sobbing, and my heart broke. Your face looked so scared, so vulnerable. You can do this, baby. I cupped your face in my hand. I shook with fear, but I tried my best to hide it from you, plastering a big, fake, reassuring smile on my face. My big, brave boy. You can do this. You can do this for Mummy. I know you can. The kitchen door erupted and then exploded inwards, a shower of splinters raining onto the floor. The bogeyman stood in the remains of the doorway. His long-handled axe clutched in his twisted, weird hands. He was covered in what I can only assume was the blood of Toby the dog. And even though the damn dog hadn't been real, I felt sudden rage. You had drawn that dog. He had defended you. He was your friend. And this... this thing had brutally slaughtered it. The bogeyman took a slow deliberate step across the threshold towards us. I put my body between it and you. Hurry up, baby! I'm drawing, Mummy! The bogeyman chuckled again, knowing we were cornered, and moved towards us once more. I heard scribbling behind me, heard a page tearing, felt paper being thrust into my hand and I had a moment to look at the sketch before it changed under my fingers grew heavy and solid and metallic well done baby now I just need you to draw one more thing darling just one more thing what mummy you were whispering almost half dead with fright and I reached behind me to touch your knee The bogeyman took another step forward. Remember the safe place from my story? Where the monsters can't go? But, Mummy, what about you? Yes, Mummy, what about you? The bogeyman leered at me, mocking my son's voice. He brought himself another step closer. I turned away from him and smiled at you. Be along in a minute. You lowered your shaking hand to the paper and began to draw a doorway. The paper shimmered as the pen moved across it. Go! I whipped my head back around to come face to face with the bogeyman, who suddenly stood mere inches away, breathing a foul, fetid cloud of black stench into my face 
a stench that was tinged with a distinct, all too recognizable smell of cinnamon. Distantly, behind the blood pounding in my ears, I heard a door creak open. I felt light and heat at my back, and then I heard it slam. Relief poured into me. I threw back my head. Did you think I wouldn't defend my own child? And I lifted my shining new sword up in front of my face. The pinprick eyes bore into me, and the axe flew from my head. I thrust the sword into the bogeyman's neck while his arms were raised, and I yanked sideways. Clanged to the ground as the bogeyman let out a roar that quickly died as I pulled the sword back on itself and thrust again, this time yanking in the opposite direction. I felt something give and snap, and then there was a sensation of release somehow. The bogeyman crumpled to the floor in a sickening heap. His head tumbled along the kitchen floor and came to rest, eyes up by the fridge I stared at the bloody sword in my hands then I spun around and saw the door you had drawn a hasty oblong square of white in the dark of our kitchen with a simple circle for a handle I pulled the door open and saw you sitting in a green meadow with sunshine all around I drew you into my arms my boy My darling boy, I would do whatever it took to keep you safe. The memories have released me back into the care of this hospital. But not for long. Not for long. Henry, are you there? I'm here, Mum. What do you need? Remember when you were a boy, Henry, and I would tell you about the safe place. You swallow, overcome with emotion. A place where the monsters can't go. Make me a door, Henry. Tears roll from the corner of my eyes and drop to the pillow beneath me. Make me a door. It's time. I close my eyes. I'm tired. So tired. Thank you. I take your hand one last time. I love you, Henry. An object is thrust into my hands, and I nod weakly, knowing what it is and why you have given it to me. A door squeaks open, and a golden light leaks in under my heavy, crusty eyelids. And there will be no more nightmares. And no more pain. And no more anything. 
For I am going to the safe place. And I am going to take the sketchbook with me. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 